You go around the world and in places that there's not a high focus on consumption of animal proteins. You go to India and the you know, Southeast Asian subcontinent, you go to the Caribbean, you go to Latin America, and everybody's figured out that beans and rice or a legume and a, and a grain are good together. How does that happen? It has to be an evolutionary pressure that if you were just a bean eater and a stress came along, you died. So people just learn through experimentation. Foods are still foods, and, and it's always a food first approach if you can. So the way that you make up for a lower amino acid content is you either eat more or you pair your proteins the way that we've talked about, talked about. Talked about. That's Professor Stuart Phillips, and this is the Proof Podcast. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you. I hope you are having a beautiful week. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm glad that we are finally connected. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions in a world of misinformation, disinformation, and quite frankly, too much information. My goal is to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and feel better for longer. I'm also a big believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us. Another theme that we'll explore together here. Today I sit down with Professor Stuart Phillips, a world-leading scientist interested in all things skeletal muscle health and healthy aging, and what a resume he has. He is a professor in kinesiology and graduate faculty in the School of Medicine at McMaster University a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences and the American College of Sports Medicine. Over his long and incredibly successful career, his research has focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on the mechanisms of human skeletal muscle protein turnover. Pretty much any time you read a paper on nutrition, exercise, and muscle, Stuart is either one of the authors or his work is cited within the paper. He's actually in the top 1%, top 1% of all cited researchers in physiology and nutrition, a heavy hitter, so to speak. All that to say, we're in good hands today. In this conversation, Stuart and I talk about the role of exercise, nutrition, and recovery in building and maintaining muscle, why it's important to stay strong as we age, animal versus plant protein, and plenty more. Of course, given the number of possible deep dives that come with this topic, please see this as a very evidence-informed but high-level conversation. In fact, we've already penciled in a time and date for another episode that will dive deeper, which will follow this episode in a few months' time. With that said, this is Professor Stuart Phillips. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood 
and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Stuart, welcome to the show. Simon, thanks very much for having me on. I've really been looking forward to this. I have enjoyed our exchanges on Twitter back and forth. You're, you're fairly active on there for a researcher. And I know that sometimes Twitter can be a little bit of a wild space, I guess you could say, a little colorful sometimes. But I'm, I'm super grateful for the opportunity that it presents with regards to connecting with incredible career scientists such as yourself. So, you know, just from the outset here, I really want to thank you for the time that you take and the patience that you have to educate people on social media. I think it's fantastic. I appreciate that. Like you said, it's probably there's some, there's a lot of good. And uh, every now and again, there's a little bit of bad that makes you say, <laughs> why am I on here? Yeah. You know? so, so thank you. I appreciate that. It, it, it didn't start out as a conscious effort, but it, it is now for sort of uh, knowledge dissemination, translation, call it what you will. But uh, yeah. Sure. Well, let me tell you, your, uh, your hard work and presence on there certainly is not uh, unnoticed. Let's, let's start with with you here as a researcher. 
you are certainly one of the world's top authority figures when it comes to exploring all things skeletal muscle. And I know now, as I read more and more papers in this space, I just see your name popping up continually. Either you're a part of writing that paper or someone is referencing, citing your research. I'm curious, what led you down this path, this path of exploring how we can build and maintain muscle and its importance in aging of all the fields of science and the various questions that could be explored. Why did this one grab your attention? Yeah, it, it's um, it's a story I've told a few times and it's probably sort of, I don't want to call it the accidental professor, but um, I was convinced at the end of my undergraduate, I played, I played sports all the time growing up and, you know, uh, you, you and your audience can appreciate rugby was my, my top game. Uh, so rugby or ice hockey or football, the American kind or the Canadian branded version were my sports. So I, I was always active and I, I really gravitated towards anything to do with sciences. I went and did my undergraduate actually at McMaster where I am now in biochemistry. And so I'm sort of classically biochemistry trained as opposed to physiology, which is sort of more what I would identify with now. And I was certain at the end of that, I was going to go into medicine. So everything in Canada for medicine is a postgraduate degree. And uh, in the last year that I was about to uh, come back and finish out my degree uh, playing rugby, I broke my leg and uh, I, I couldn't play. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I took a senior thesis class and uh, I kind of just fell in love with the, it wasn't lightning bolt love. It wasn't like crash, you know, but I, I really came to enjoy the, the sort of methodical research approach. And I was doing stuff that was totally different, but I really uh, got into that. And then in the last year of my, or the last semester, excuse me, I'm my undergraduate, I took a nutrition class and, and it was sort of like the, that was really uh, an epiphany moment for me. I, I'd never really been exposed to nutrition took it as an elective and I was like, wow, this is, this stuff is awesome. Did the master's at the end of that. I thought, you know, I'm probably going to do medicine anyway, but I thought, you know, this PhD thing is pretty appealing. Did the PhD, still thought about medicine, uh, did a postdoc in, uh, in Texas for a few years. And I don't think until I actually got the job and I realized, wow, like I'm, I'm going to be a professor uh, that you would have had a hard time. You know, if somebody came and said, you're going, to, you're going to be a professor, you're going to do research and it's going to, you know, and I've been like, nah, that's, that's not really me. And then, you know, here we are, well, like almost 30 years later. So There you go. And from conversations I've had with others about your work and about you that know you personally, they all seem to say that it's, it's not only the research side of things that you love, but you love teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's sort of, I, th I think a lot of people, like, I think if you ask me, and, and being honest, uh, you know, what brings me to work, it's it's the research. And, um, you know, I, I've been really uh, fortunate to have uh, crews of great undergrads, grad students, postdoc fellows uh, in the lab and, and, you know, transitioning through on their way to bigger and better things that have really just inspired me and, you know, made me look good in their and their reflected hard work. But I do uh, enjoy teaching. I don't do as much of it as I used to. I have a, a Canada research chair now, which um, 
means I get to spend a little bit more time on research, but uh, did a lot of teaching. Um, proud to say, got a, a few awards doing that. So uh, I really enjoy uh, telling stories and making a few jokes and trying to get people to understand things. So uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I enjoy that aspect of, of the position. Not as much of it, like I said, anymore, but I do a lot of supervision of undergraduate students for thesis projects and senior theses and that sort of thing. So still keeps me in touch with the with the undergrad population. Let's talk about some of your research. Sometimes I think that people assume that research looking at building muscle is for bodybuilders. How important is is building and maintaining muscle and staying strong when it comes to general health, vitality, and and longevity. Yeah, I, and so this this is my twenty fourth year at McMaster now, and I would probably I sort of divide my career almost into halves, and I would say that the first half of the the sort of you know twenty four years that I've been here, it was really about looking at younger people and making them bigger, stronger, faster, and sort of you know it was the the transition from my experiences in sports and we did a lot of work in in young folks and we still do and and that was really cool really interesting still really really uh inspired by that type of work and i think you know at some point whether it's a conscious decision or not you know I, i'm getting older so research becomes as i say to people it becomes me search right i'm interested in what's happening to me <laughs> and i also uh, about six years ago took on the directorship of what's known as the physical activity center of excellence uh, McMaster and the average age of the people who come and they're from the community uh, into that center is about 70, around 70 years old. And, you know, since then, I've just become really fascinated with what's happening as people get older and people sort of make this transition in their life. You know, people say, when does aging start? I'm always, it's going on all the time, but, uh, you know, the current answer is, well, really starts in earnest at around, you know, 57 or something. Next year, it's 58. That might be a personal reflection, but, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think as, as a, a tissue, uh, skeletal muscle has um, suffered from a little lack of love over the years. It was just sort of this, you know, great big organ that was around locomotion and that was it, or, you know, moving around your environment. Uh, but I think we're beginning to realize now a lot by virtue of its mass, but also by virtue of its activity. If you're physically active, it's the largest site of postprandial glucose disposal. So it has, plays a key role uh, in regulating uh, blood sugar, blood glucose. Um, it's a large site of lipid oxidation, particularly, again, if you're, if you're active. And, it, you know, outside of your liver, if you kind of boil down your, your resting metabolic rate, it's skeletal muscle, again, it, uh, by virtue of its mass. And your liver, by virtue of its massive metabolic activity. So, and, and people say, "Well, surely then your liver is important." I said, "Yeah, but you you don't use you don't lose your liver as you age, but you lose your muscles. So, you know, it's a sort of a driver of energy expenditure. So, uh, you know, from that perspective, we think it's a pretty important metabolically relevant tissue to to be studied. Of course. So, having a good amount of muscle is beneficial. Is there such a thing as too much muscle? If we look at a, a population like the Okinawans and maybe people are thinking about this and you know they're often cited for their longevity, can live into their 90s and, and 100s. There are, of course, 
many different populations that also exhibit longevity, they're not exactly the biggest folks in the world. So when we talk about having a good amount of muscle, what does that actually mean? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to talk about, you bring up the Okinawans and, uh, you know, I've often made this point on Twitter to talk about, like, I love looking at Blue Zone uh, characteristics and there's a, you know, pick your favorite one or whatever. You sort of distill some characteristics down and the big thing is, is that they, you know, they they tend to be close to water, hence the blue. Uh, They tend to live on places where the, you know, the landscape is like this. So just walking around, which they do a lot of, it's like a constant workout. You know, you're walking up a hill, down a hill, you're walking all over the place. The predominantly, you know, as you would know, plant-based diets. And they have societies that, uh, you know, there's no ageism that's there. So they're valued as members of society and they're sought out for their opinion. But yeah, Okinawans aren't big people, but they're, I think, just habitually very physically active people. So I think the key and, you know, it would be remiss of me you know, I talk about nutrition the whole time is to say is that, you know, if you're not physically active, I think you're really putting yourself in a difficult position. I, I, you know, my opinion is, is that you can't out eat inactivity, you know, and you can flip it around. People say, oh, you, you can't out diet, you know, you can't outrun a bad diet. And I'm like, well, you know, let's just say as if, if you're judicious about what you're eating, and then physically active on top. It's it's not just sort of one adds to the other, but they're synergistic in their benefits. So, you know, Okinawans relative to their body size are actually quite strong people. And I think it's not as, as if you need mass in terms of your muscle, but you should definitely protect the muscle that you have. And the primary driver of that is to be physically active. So nutrition and food are they're the synergistic uh, actors that um, help to shape muscle, but you, you have to move. Yeah, I think that's important to sort of understand the priorities of different tools and, and to have an appreciation for what are the biggest levers, what are still important, but perhaps not as big levers to pull. And I want to explore that a little more, but before we get to that, this gets me thinking about, you know, how would someone sort of determine if they do have a good amount of muscle. Let's say someone is getting into their later years of life. Are there some simple tests that have been validated or uh, things that someone could do at home to measure if they have sufficient strength for their age that they're actually tracking along quite well in this department? Yeah, it, it's that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer because you know we have uh, data when we observe people moving around their environment that is definitely, uh, if you say, give them a pedometer and see how much they work they do or if they self-report. And then when we bring them into the lab, we give them a series of tests that try to recapitulate activities of daily living. Probably the most used device, and and there's lots of data and there's normative values on it, is to talk about hand grip strength. I'm not a huge fan of hand grip. I would be much uh, more impressed if we had a great big battery of leg strength because I think that you know squeezing something is uh, interesting, but you know it's a proxy for strength. Let's say easy to do. Uh, everybody has a dynamometer somewhere, and probably you know if you sit there and squeeze as hard as you can, you you get this number. But you know tests that are probably more prognostic of how somebody's going to fare as they get older, things like a six minute walk test 
or uh, what we call a timed up and go. So you sit in a chair, you rise, you come out around a cone and you come back. And eventually I talk to people who say, what's the most functional lift? Well, at some point in your life, you have to get yourself up and out of a chair. And that's basically how you have to get yourself off of a toilet. When you can't do that, then you're in trouble. You're basically in institutionalized care. So I don't know that there's anything that's so sensitive that you could say, you know, as this is happening, you're going to run into a problem. But we do talk about people transitioning to different degrees of ability in terms of, you know, if you're going downstairs, do you feel you can do it without holding on to the handrail? And a lot of older people say, no, I, I wouldn't do that. So you've made a small modification in your routine that indicates that you're not as confident as either your balance or your strength or both uh, in being able to descend a flight of stairs. And small indications like that are, are, are possible indications that something is happening that you know in the future is going to become a problem unless you do something about it. Yeah, I suppose if someone's kind of curious as to where they stand, these are probably things that they could have assessed by a physical therapist or a physiotherapist who would be across some of these these different scoring tools and, and tests. In terms of training, you mentioned there the importance of being physically active in, in terms of building and, and maintaining this skeletal muscle mass, which is then correlated with longevity. Do you think people give resistance training enough credit when it comes to building muscle. It seems online that, or perhaps in my circles anyway, I guess it depends who you follow and the echo chambers that you fall in, but it, it seems that a, a protein does seem to take up a lot of bandwidth here. Yeah, so so the answer is probably a two-parter. I, I think that we've got we've got a lot of data on what it means to be aerobically fit you know, so your VO2 max. And, you know, that's, um, some people have speculated it's almost a fifth vital sign. So if you could measure it and and you could get a hold of this indication, uh, it's, a, it's a very, very prognostic measure of, you know, future longevity, health span, et cetera, et cetera. And my feeling is because it crosses different physiological systems. So your heart has to work, your lungs have to work, your circulation has to work, your muscles have to be coordinated, and that requires this. And so any failure at somewhere along the way, the system's going to break down. So it, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of physiological, we call moving parts that you have to take into account. And, you know, so you trace back the history of when did we start thinking that fit, fitness was important. And you go to people like, uh, you know, Ken Cooper in the longitudinal aerobic study, and, you know, I've given talks where I've mused it to say, you know, what, what if Ken Cooper were a lifter instead of a runner? You know, we know more about resistance training. And, uh, but, you know, studies like the Cooper longitudinal study and lots of other studies that are similar in nature have really looked at cardiovascular fitness. And there's no, like, hands down, it's really important. I think at some point in your life, and it's hard to say when that is, strength is going to become more important. So I'm pleased to say that. Ken Cooper is is now a vested lifter. Uh, he's getting a bit older. Uh, he doesn't run as much. In fact, I don't know if he runs at all anymore. He's basically on the bike and he and he does weights because as your muscle mass begins to decline, this condition of sarcopenia, then you begin to notice that certain things are harder to do. And you can be as fit as you want, but you know it, it's going to become a challenge. So, you know, at that point, 
you know, my belief is is that strength is going to become a rate limiting factor for certain things in in your day, and yes. you're going to want to be stronger. So, I'm not as sure that it's muscle mass per se, but the function of the muscle that you do have, and really relative to your body weight. So, and this, you know, there's a lot of other sort of offshoots of that type of thing, but it's it's the ability to move yourself around your environment that's that ultimately is going to be an important thing where protein comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's dominant, right. And resistance training grew out of, uh, you know, you'll forgive the, uh, the stereotype, but you know, big men and dark gyms, weight belts and, and chalk. Right. And I mean, it was the exclusive domain of those types of folks for a long and, and still is to a large part. You know, my own take is that, uh, it needs to be demystified made easier to understand for the general public. And if it were, I think people would would begin to understand what it means to just be a little bit stronger. And uh, I think the, the challenging part is you can say to somebody, you, you need to get fitter. So you need to, so people walk out their front door and go for walks. You know, there's zero barriers virtually. Um, but if you need to, you know, be strong, then People go, oh, I don't want to go to gym. I hate lifting weights. And and you know, neither of those have to be the way you do things. But then what's the alternative, right? And so you say, oh, well, have you done a push-up? And everybody goes, I hate push-ups because push-ups were used as a punitive <laughs> system for, you know, if you didn't show up on time at, in PE class, it was, you know, give me 20 push-ups. And you're just like, <laughs> so push-ups are a bad thing and everything. But uh Astonishingly, again, uh, predictive of future mobility issues. You know, how many push-ups can you do? And I think the study I'm thinking of is about age 40. And if you could do 10 or less, you were in real trouble. So, you know, uh, not exactly my my best data to back up my point, but certainly indi- indicative that it's it's more than just fitness. Yeah. So the main point being that there is different types of exercise. There are different tools. These are both beneficial being cardiovascular fit, but also paying attention to your strength through your adulthood is very important for healthy aging and for longevity. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com.
insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. You, you mentioned resistance training there and you spoke a, a little bit about the sort of bodybuilder scene. And I guess this resistance training sort of phrase terminology gets thrown around a little bit. And what I hear is you're, you're sort of saying that, you know, it doesn't have to be the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of workout. It could be. But I, I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, what is resistance training? Is it simply lifting weights or is it doing body weight exercise? Could it be sitting on a stationary bike with resistance? Could it be swimming? There's resistance involved there. Could it be power yoga? You know, when you look at the research and you're looking at the stimulus that will create uh, muscle growth and help you maintain and build strength, what do you kind of define resistance training as? Yeah, you know, great, great question. I mean, I think, you know, the, the paradigm that what we're talking about here is, you know, a strength endurance continuum. So, you know, if you can go for a walk and you can walk for hours and hours, the chances are is it's not particularly building that much strength. No, it is helping your muscle and your muscle is getting, a, a, you know, a good workout and, and you're maintaining the health of that tissue. So I'm not going to dismiss that. You, you come sort of further down. Uh, the spectrum. And when you find yourself, if let's say, so we put on a vest and the vest weighs 30 pounds, you know, which is a pretty significant amount. Now you can only walk for 30 minutes. And now I'm going to put on a vest that's 60 pounds. Now you can only walk for 10 minutes. And so what I'm trying to sort of get across is that it's about the force that you're generating with each movement that you do uh, that is eventually going to fatigue you. Now, at some point, there's going to be a vest or there's going to be a weight or whatever it is. Uh, that you have a hard time lifting and you can probably only move it, you know, four or five, six times, or maybe up to, you know, as many as 25 is sort of the upper end of where people think it becomes less like strength and more like endurance. So let me just say that, uh, as you point out, uh, the, the bodybuilders and uh, the power lifters lifting enormously heavy weights are doing it for a specific reason. Bodybuilders to gain muscle mass, the power lifters to generate extreme forces 
and to do it once. And you know, so what is it that's important to you? If you, if that's an important goal for you, then that's the type of training you should pursue. If you are, you know, a mere mortal, uh, Jane, Joe, Hugh, average person out there. Uh, then strength can be achieved in, in, in any number of ways. It, it can come from uh, weights that are much lighter than I think we once we once thought. And, you know, we thought, you know, those were essentially useless weights and it would be the opposite that's true. So in other words, uh, they can give you some strength and probably important functional strength, but they wouldn't at the same time uh, give you the type of strength that a lot of athletes are craving. And so, you know, our lab's been at the center of this sort of trying to push this concept that lighter weights, as long as they're done with a fairly good degree of effort, and you can say what you want. Some people say to fatigue. So taking it all the way to the point where you're trying to lift a weight and your, you know, your arms are shaking. And I, you know, I think most people have a sense of that. You try, you can't do it. It doesn't need to be there, uh, but if you've got, you know, it's sort of like you're pushing a weight over your head and you're feeling like, I could do this maybe a couple more times, but then it's going to be really hard work, you stop. And so I say, you're, you're an 8 or 9 out of 10. But I think those types of maneuvers are extraordinarily uh, productive for uh, developing strength and developing the types of strength that, that translates into real applications. Um, so it's, it's sort of, you know, what, what are your goals? What do you want to do? You don't have to lift a weight, uh, because really, uh, you've got all the weight that you really have to care about lifting. And that's a, that's a, your body weight. So as I said, uh, if you can crack off about, you know, 10 or 15 pushups and you're in your forties, that's an indication that maybe you should be trying to get a bit stronger. I agree. I think most people understand what you mean there by by feeling pretty fatigued towards the sort of end of a set, I guess it would be called. How how frequent should someone do that? How how many times in a day should they get to that point from a sort of protocol point of view? Is it as simple as just walking outside and and doing, you know, 20 squats and getting to that point of fatigue and then you've ticked it off for the week and you can wait until uh, next Monday and do it again? Or is there a certain amount of volume, you know, number of times you need to reach that point of fatigue in a week where you're going to to provide enough stimulus to get the results that you're after? Yeah, so I'm going to give you the pragmatic answer first. And it's the, the pragmatic is so, you know, to, to be really clear, somebody out there is going like, like, I don't want to lift the weight. I don't want to do this, you know. So let me let me work on that person first. And and I'll say that, you know, a lot like the same data around being, you know, physically inactive from a, a an aerobic standpoint. So a sedentary person, we get the biggest reduction in risk for most chronic diseases when we take someone going from nothing to something. So let me say is that if you can only really get yourself out there once a week. That would make me happy because, you know, but even by self-report, albeit, so I'm never really sure what that means. But, you know, only about something like 10% of people, at least in North America, say, I'm doing resistive style training, what's recommended, which is twice a week. And so, you know, I, I, I'm so jaded about all these self-report things. I'm like, ah, so that means probably it's about 5% of people. So, you know, everybody else is like, oh, I'm doing that. And then, you know, because everybody wants to look good on these things. 
So let's just say is that, you know, if you're not doing anything one time a week is great. Two times a week, you're hitting where the guidelines are and where we know you're getting benefits that probably actually overlap to a pretty significant degree with what you get from aerobic exercise. After that, then I'm, I begin to call you somebody who's training for a specific purpose. Your goal, you're, you're got a goal in mind. You're scheduling yourself to be able to fit that routine. So if you're, you're engaging in it three times a week, you've probably got a goal, whether it's long-term fitness, it's strength for a sport or, you know, you name it, you're sort of uh, training, I'll just say. Uh, not that you're not at one or two, um, but you, you, you're engaging in it in a, in a conscious manner if you're doing it three or more times a week. I think the benefits from a health standpoint and all the things that we know say that, you know, it sort of goes one, two, three, and then after that, it begins to taper off. Now, if you're into a serious sort of strength training sport or you're an athlete, you're going to begin to do those, even though they're marginal gains, extra workouts that are probably going to help you in your sport. But then at some point, as I make the, I make it pretty clear to most athletes uh, that I talk to and coaches, I say the workout's great. All the magic happens in recovery. So, you know, you can't, it's either overtraining or under recovering, call it whatever you want. Uh, but you can't keep doing something and expect to get a positive return. At some point, uh, you know, exercise is still stress and you have to recover from stress. And, you know, the whole stress adaptation thing would say you've, you've got to recover more and allow yourself to get better. So, when I was young, five days a week, no problem. Six sometimes, easy. Uh, now that would that would tear me in half. I, I just couldn't do it. So it's about being a bit smarter, knowing what your body can handle, and um, and and what you know. Time is the usually the number one sided barrier, right? How much time do you have? So I do want to dig into to recovery before we kind of slide into that. Is there any research that's looked at when we're talking about strength and healthy aging, longevity, what's more important, lower body strength or upper body strength? If someone is kind of thinking about maybe they are time poor, they want to structure up their program and have some sort of priorities here in terms of the exercises they're doing. Do you have a, a view on that? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, you know, bodybuilders, you typically think of this person that's sort of got this V-shaped body. And so it's a lot of upper body focused exercises. But, you know, the bodybuilders, the serious ones will say nobody should ever skip leg day, right? And, you know, don't don't skip leg day and all this sort of thing. I think, it, you know, from a muscular aesthetic standpoint, of course, you like got big legs too. Um we have so much data on hand grip strength. You'd be tempted to think that your program should just be about trying to work on your hand grip, but it's just a proxy. It's a reflection uh, of sort of global overall strength. Clearly, uh, the majority of the maneuvers that you're really going to care about as you get a little bit older are lower body focused. So mobility is driven by, you know, can you get up and out of a chair? And everybody says that's strength, but, you know, if we think about the amount of time taken to do it, it's, it's really actually power. It's uh, strength in a short period of time. So it's force times velocity. So from that standpoint, I would say, you know, people need to focus a little bit on their lower body uh, and not that certain activities shouldn't be upper body focused, but it's, you know, in its simplest form, we talk about there's a push, uh, there's a pull, 
And then there's a leg exercise. And so if you only had three things to do, there would be a push of some form. Let's say it's a push-up. The pull is hard uh, because there's no equivalent sort of activity that you can do. So you've either got to find a bar that you're pulling yourself up to or an elastic style of uh, working out that are, you know, elastic, like band training during the pandemic was, it's all I did. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose so much. And, and, and I didn't. <laughs> In fact, I really enjoy doing band training. And I think if you're pretty creative about it, you can, you can get yourself a great workout. Uh, and then, you know, up and down, to the, it's the squat with, uh, with your legs um, if you did nothing else. And those are the three sort of, I think, core basic maneuvers that most people, you know, if they had no time at all, could get away with doing and do something really beneficial for themselves. That's good advice. Also thinking about some of those maneuvers there, it makes me think about the importance of mobility as well as strength. Is that something else that the research has looked at, the ability to take the joint through a, a sort of full or mostly full range of motion? Yeah, you, you know, to be clear, strength is the lab-based measure that we use, but, you know, functional mobility tests and tasks are really what we're, you know, when we're talking about the benefits, that's what we really care about as people get older. So, you know, we have a few lab-based tests and then we have uh, people's sort of objective um, self-report of their mobility that, you know, can you do this activity? Can you get in and out of a car uh, with ease? And, you know, as older, it gets, it's tougher, right? Uh, can you go up and down stairs? And, you know, these are the sorts of things. Can you get your groceries by yourself? And so, there's a degree of independence that goes along with that, but it's really about we call it functional mobility uh, and moving around your environment. And, and the term that a lot of people uh, in our world use is, is called life space. And you can imagine somebody who is basically living and never gets out of their apartment has a very small life space. And then there's somebody who's in an apartment and they go downstairs and they go to maybe some of the stores nearby. And then other people, their life space is larger. And this begins to pull in concepts like, uh, can you drive? Uh, can you use public transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those are going to affect your, your mobility. And you know, if the pandemic has, has taught us nothing about uh, older people and what it means in terms of you know their ability to be resilient against all of this stuff is that you have to be physically mobile, um, and you have to have probably some sense then of social connection because if you can't move, you're probably socially isolated. If you're socially isolated, you're lonely. If you're lonely, you're at greater risk for a depression. And you know there's a whole school of thought in, in geriatric medicine that uh, older people essentially die of loneliness. They just, their health declines and everything uh, that, you know, goes, goes south with it. Mm, it's a great point to, to kind of illustrate how loss of strength and, and function ties into our overall existence and being and the pleasure that we can derive from life and quality of life. And that all of that, you know, makes complete sense. I've got a question on, on the mobility side of things, and this is more of an instructive kind of practical question for someone listening. If, if you're wanting to be able to maintain the, the range of motion to get in and out of the car, to, to stand up, sit down, is it performing these resistance style exercises that you're talking about that will help 
someone achieve that or would they also need to add in stretching or mobility sort of specific exercises? Is that something that this this area of research has looked at? Yeah, I mean, I think any of the people in, in, involved in physical therapy would tell you that uh, you try and make any training or you know, away from whatever the task is as specific to the task as possible that, you know, you're trying to master. So getting in and out of a car is, well, first I have to take my, my seatbelt off. And, you know, so can I, you know, can my, does my shoulder go back this far? And, you know, some people, it's a hard time to do that. The next thing you see a lot of people, and I'm using my mom as a model here, she grabs the, the handle uh, on the ceiling and then she pivots and, and swings her legs out of the car. So, you know, there's grip strength. There's a little bit of a pull, right? Because you're lifting yourself up a little bit. You're swinging your legs around. And so there's a little bit of, it was obviously your hip flexors to hold your legs up. And, and those things are, are strength and then a little power because you've got to do it in a, short, a fairly short period of time. How would you train for that? You think of all of the muscles that you would use. So picking your leg up, pulling on something with one hand or pulling with another hand or taking, you know, something like an elastic arm and pulling back on it. It's, you know, so you train to try and mimic the movements as closely as possible so that they translate into the activity that you would like to do. And, um, you know, we're rife with studies to show that uh, people who practice the activity, it's as much to do with strength and everything else. And then, this knowing the motor pattern to execute to get the muscles to fire in the in the right order at the right time. I want to dig a little bit into what's happening at a cellular level here. So slight sort of change of gears, and uh, we've been focusing more, I guess, on on healthy aging here. But this will also speak to people who are younger and are just looking to improve their uh, the amount of muscle they have and strength, perhaps from a performance point of view. When we do resistance training, what is it that happens at a cellular level that leads to these improvements? And you mentioned then sort of uh, neuromotor. I'm interested, uh, how much of the results that we get are due to new muscle, more contractile tissue versus you know training the nervous system? Yeah, so the classic paradigm and, and you know go like rewind, 24 years for me. I, I started at McMaster. I got my job, and the office right next door to mine was occupied by a guy named Digby Sale, who is uh, one of the like a true pioneer. He, I, when he retired, he accrued. I mean, I think it was the rule of like 55 years of service plus his age, and like it was just astonishing. And he was one of the early sort of people that talked about training the neuromuscular system as being. Uh, responsible for some of these early strength gains we saw in novice individuals. So you start lifting weights and, you know, two weeks later, you're like, wow, like I can lift more weight. So I've adapted and you look down at your muscles and they don't seem much bigger. And when we take a biopsy or we measure the thickness in the area of your muscle, they aren't bigger. So, you know, the theory was, is that that's your brain talking to your muscle and being able to fire what we call motor units, which are the units and the nerves that control how many muscle fibers you get active at any one time, that they get better at firing together. So you get a little bit stronger. Um, I, I think the current thinking is that that's still true for the most part for the early strength adaptations. 
And then it used to sort of be, well, uh, and then once we've done that, the, the increase in strength is due to hypertrophy or growth of the muscle. And there's this sort of axiom that, you know, as your muscle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, a muscle that has a bigger cross-sectional area can generate more force, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's harder now uh, to say that the what exactly is contributing to the strength gain that you get. I'm not denying that you know muscle growth is probably a, a part of it. Um, I've softened a little bit on that. It's you know immediately it's neuromotor and then it switches to muscle and you know near the twain shall meet. So I think it's probably a combination of those at any one time. That's sort of it's going on all the time. I do think that. Um, <laughs> One of the things that that people have a concept that's out there that I think is growing a little bit older is that you're creating muscle damage every time you lift weights, and then it's the repair of that damage and making your muscles better that is adding to their their size. And I'm not going to disagree with that categorically, but I think the concept is more like you create a stimulus in your muscle to increase the turnover of proteins. Like it's going on all the time. You're making them and you're breaking them down. Uh, and the rate of making them just tends to win in the end, makes your muscle a little bit bigger, but it's not driven by damage per se. In other words, there, there's lots of videos on YouTube talking about micro tears and repair of micro tears. And uh, I think that's a little outdated in the way that people look at that. So there's constant turnover and then at some point you know obviously the synthetic process begins to win over the breakdown process and everybody says well why would you turn stuff over that seems so inefficient and i said well you know think about a car engine you know if you're gonna tear it down and build it back up you know it, it never gets nothing ever goes wrong right you know it's like this part isn't working wow we're gonna fix that you know so that's that's going on all you in every single protein you know, in your muscle or, you know, your skin or, you know, and even your your bone, right? You know, newsflash, your bone is actually 40% by composition protein, right? It's not, not just a stick of chalk. So I say to people, I'm like, otherwise, I say, if you, if you snap the stick, they go, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, that's what would happen if your bones were just chalk. And I said, there, they are, there's a lot of mineral in there, but there's this, this collagen that makes them a little bit bendy, just just a little bit, and, and they go, "You bones don't bend." I'm like, "They do too." <laughs> it's a good thing they do, or you snap them all the time. But you know, all those proteins are being remodeled, and I think that that's the more up to date concept that people can think about when they're talking about lifting weights and trying to gain a bit of muscle. Is it true something that I've heard before? which speaks to remodeling and, and sort of turnover, that every 50 to 100 days, our muscle has essentially replaced itself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, within reason, probably true. I, I have a, a really good friend, colleague, uh, Luke Van Loon, who is at the University of Maastricht in the, in the Netherlands. And he does this wonderful, it's, a, you know, one of his Stan Pat lines where he holds his arm out and he says, you know, Look at my arm, and he said, "If you could, you know, had an X-ray, you know, you would see your muscles in, you know, 40, 50 days. You would have a new muscle." And you know, and I'm not doing the accent, you know. <laughs> uh, certainly, if Luke ever sees this, he's probably going to go, you know, mad. But, <laughs> but my point is, is that he's spot on. It, it's exactly uh, the case. So yeah, you're renewing the muscle protein. In fact, I've made the point that if you could sort of take a look at your, at your uh, what we call our splanchnic region, so your gastrointestinal uh, and everything in that region, 
that turns over like your your intestines turn over at almost 10 times a faster rate. So you're renewing and making new cells and new proteins in that region of your body. Uh, it would be, you know, you'd have a new gut in, or it has to be about something like uh, 10 days. So yeah, it's a pretty cool. Uh, those are the sorts of things when I think about, I'm like, that's so cool. I'm, I'm like, I, I know science is where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> you spoke about the turnover and there's this constant synthesis and breakdown of this tissue. If someone's goal is to build muscle, to promote hypertrophy, what do we understand can can help promote the synthesis such that it exceeds the breakdown and you do get the development of of new muscle? It's the synergy between uh, the weights that you lift and uh, doing it on a repetitive enough basis and trying to progress. Um, and, and by progress, I mean you're either lifting heavier weights or you're lifting the same weight and lifting it more times and so you know however many uh repetitions or sets etc those sorts of things which we equate and eventually multiply out and talk about volume that you lift uh in combination with allowing sufficient recovery and then the remodeling process is really around having uh sufficient intake of well total energy so being in probably uh, energy balance at least or maybe a little bit extra energy and uh, and eating sufficient protein, and you know you time honored. People know how to get bigger and stronger, and it's you know the, the athlete model is the seafood diet, right? In other words, you see it, you eat it, and uh, <laughs> and and people say, well, won't I get fatter? And and, and the answer is, you may, <laughs> but that's the environment that favors uh, a net anabolism. In other words, being in a caloric surplus. And having sufficient protein, and then you know working your muscle hard enough that you're going to force an adaptation. Cool. I, I want to explore those kind of facets of, of nutrition and and how one can kind of set that up and optimize it or think about it depending on what their goals are. You mentioned recovery there, and you've said that a few times. And I'm curious: is that just allowing ample time between? training is it a specific focus on sleep and rest or reducing stress in our life when you think of recovery and you think about optimizing this muscle protein synthesis such that it exceeds muscle protein breakdown we're promoting muscle growth we're getting stronger what do we understand from a scientific point of view when we think about recovery that is particularly beneficial my views on that have evolved and, and I'll sort of give you my most recent evolution of that. Uh, you know, at one point, if you'd asked me 15, 20 years ago, I just said, well, recovery is just not exercising. And, you know, even at that time, uh, coaches were promoting the concept of active recovery, which, you know, it's, it's an oxymoron, right? You can't be active and recover, but, you know, so you, you do some lighter uh, exercise and fair enough. I get it. It's possible exercise is still a stress. So to recover from the stress, you have to be able to sort of give your body and the system of the tissue, whatever it is, enough time to restore itself to be a little bit better uh, than it was before. So time is one variable that you need to put into account. Um, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, easily, if you said sleep, I'd have been like, not an issue, no way. 
10 years ago, I've been like, nah, I don't know. I don't think so. Five years ago, I've been like, yeah, I think it's important. Now, I, I think it's it's pretty critical. You know, from all that we understand about sleep now, uh, it's enormously important in allowing maybe not the recovery of the tissue per se, but in a general sense of a more sort of holistic what recovery means. Um, a lot of things, if not everything, from a, a definitely a mental standpoint, flow from sleep. Um, and younger people, <laughs> the, the beauty of youth, um, certain people who, I, I mean, I've never been a big sleeper uh, and I can still, like I can run on six hours of sleep almost continuously, no problem. I'll, I'd like to get seven every now and again, but it's a rare night when I sleep eight. Uh, but when I was younger, it used to be four hours and I was good to go. And but I, I can't do that now. I, I don't think as well. My body hurts, <laughs> things ache. Uh, so I begin to think of that as a more important part of recovery. When you're younger, I think you can probably push that pretty low. Uh, at the same time, nutritionally, uh, it's about supporting all of the, giving the substrates that your body needs to remodel the proteins that we talked about making sure that you have, if it's excess energy, to be able to give you a hormonal environment that is conducive to being what we call anabolic. And in that sense, then it's eating, eating a fair amount of food. Now you can do it on less. Athletes do it all the time. You can eat not enough food and you can have yourself lose weight and you can actually gain a little bit of muscle. It's, it's damn hard work. Uh, it's not the best way to try and gain muscle. And some athletes uh, are able to push themselves to places that, you know, mere mortals just would, it, it, it would crush you. Um, and even within the sphere of athletes that I've had the, you know, the great pleasure of uh, being around, um, there's a spectrum and a continuum of some athletes that you would just say, you know what, we need you to, we need you to run through that brick wall. And, and they did it. Uh, whereas other athletes would just, they, they couldn't handle that type of volume of exercise or lack of sleep, you know, and it's, so it's very individual. Um, but yeah, it's a, I have a much greater appreciation for what true recovery is. And I think it is, I think it is rest to the degree, you know, rest, not rust, but definitely rest to allow your body to recover injuries. If they're there and everything else add to that. And then giving your body adequate enough fuel and substrate and support to be able to remodel and uh, and adapt. Okay, let's dig a little bit into nutrition and go over some of the the specifics that you've learned from your research and the research of your colleagues in this field. When you think about protein, I guess the the initial question I have here, which may seem a little straightforward, is what is protein? And and why? Why is it so important for building and maintaining muscle? Yeah, yeah. I, so first of all, I mean, I, the, the distinction I like to to make and and have be really clear for people is that uh, of all of the macronutrients, so we've got fat, carbohydrate, and protein. We'll we'll forget about alcohol for now, but uh, for all the three main mic, uh, macronutrients, uh, fat and carbohydrate are their fuel. Uh, your body takes them in, it uses them for a few other little processes. And we definitely need a certain amount of fat and from a certain source and everything. But, you know, to kind of gloss over your body, that's that's like putting wood in the fire. Your, your body's going to burn that. 
Uh, anything extra, it stores it. We're unfortunately very good at storing fat, you know, bummer, real drag. Um, but the bottom line is we have limited ability to store a carbohydrate, so you have to kind of eat it. And I, I think hands down, uh, anybody that would challenge the notion that high-intensity physical activity for most sports uh, that's out there uh, is is best fueled by carbohydrates. So, you know, I'm probably going to upset a bunch of people, but there we go. Uh, protein's different. Yeah, it's not really a great fuel. You tend not to burn it. It has nitrogen on it, and it's the only of all the macronutrients, it's the only macro that has nitrogen. Because it has nitrogen, it means it's it's a little bit more difficult metabolically to, to burn. You can do it, your body, but you have to take the nitrogen off. And it's a substrate that's used to make structures in your body. So your lungs, your heart, your skin, your blood vessels, you, know, you name it, they're, they're made out of protein. And so the major difference is, is we don't have a place like we do with fat and like we do with carbohydrate to store protein. So you either put it into tissues or you. there are some other uses of it. They're pretty small for the most part or you get rid of it. And by get rid of it, I mean, you pull the nitrogen off. Uh, if you're a fish, you excrete that out of your gills as ammonia. If you're a bird, you make uric acid. And if you're a human or mammal, you make urea. Uh, so everything has evolved to get rid of nitrogen beyond which you can immediately use it. And, you know, I, I, and I use the word toxic and people go, oh, what do you mean toxic? I'm like, well, let's just say that physiological systems don't like to have a lot of nitrogen hanging around. And, you know, you can interpret that in, in any which way that you like. But um, when we eat more protein than we can use, we upregulate every system in our body to maximize the excretion uh, of nitrogen. So it's a substrate. Uh, you make things out of it and you can't store it. So there's not, you know, people say, oh, there's this little sort of storage spot. And I'm like, where, where what is that? You know, and they say, well, you store it in muscle. And I'm like, actually, you know, your muscle after a certain point, it just says, you know, bag full. Can't, can't take any more protein in here. You got to put that someplace else. And it's got a pretty limited capacity. The only way that you can make the bag take on more is to, is to lift weights. Do you think it's it's important to understand the kind of makeup of protein in terms of what amino acids are? Is that something that you find is helpful for people to kind of have at least a, a sort of loose understanding of? Yeah, you, you know, I, I mean, the the amino acid analogy that I've used for, you know, when I was teaching and students really sort of embraced and I still use it is to say that, you know, all the protein structures in your body are made up of bricks. And the bricks are, these are these amino acids that make up protein. Then there's 20 bricks. Uh, we can make 11 of those bricks and nine of the bricks, you have to, you got to eat other brick, <laughs> quote unquote, uh, to get them and use them. And so, you know, we have a very good efficiency of recycling bricks. So, you know, you like we use the muscle and so it's the brick wall and, you know, this people down at one end taking bricks out of the wall and there's people up the other end building out the wall. And, you know, my point is, is actually uh, we're pretty good at taking the bricks that come out of the wall and putting them back in, but we're not 100% efficient. And that's what defines our need for daily protein because otherwise we're going to run out of bricks. Now, 
you know, you don't eat protein for three days, you, you don't you don't die, you don't roll over because the efficiency of that recycling gets much, much, much better. Uh, but there's only a certain point that it, I mean, it's never a hundred percent. So at some point, you know, if you don't eat enough protein or you're not being physically active, and I think uh, you know, when people are on bed rest or you know, they're in a hospital, they're really sick. Uh, you see the outward manifestation of that, and that's a a very rapid loss of uh, of muscle mass and muscle function. So, what is enough protein? And and we'll get to sort of protein quality and source and all of that. But just a sort of big picture here: there's an RDA that's that's been set. There's you know a lot of research, and I know you've looked at this extensively around what's the difference between adequate and optimal. So, I'm curious as to what your view is for general adults and for the elderly, what is, in your view, the optimal sort of amount of protein to, to be consuming on a daily basis? Wow, yeah, yeah a lot to unpack. So I, I just sort of lay it out and, and, and I'm going to give some numbers and I'll kind of give some translation if I can to have people understand what it is I'm talking about. So there's something called the recommended dietary allowance or the recommended nutrient intake, the RNI or the RDA goes by various things, but usually that starts with an R has a vowel in there and maybe a couple of other things. Um, and that's a value established by uh, a process called nitrogen balance. And so you know, I mentioned earlier that protein is the only macro or the only macronutrient that contains nitrogen is protein. And so when we think about balance, it's like how much protein comes in and how much protein goes out. So most of the uh, nitrogen we excrete is in our urine as urea. Uh, but you can think about fecal losses. You can think about sweat. You can think about hair. You can think about nail clipping, like all kinds of things. So yeah, those studies are meticulous. They're very difficult to do. Um, my issue with those studies is we know they have a lot of problems and yet it's the method from which we have a lot of data. Um, and so it continues to be the method that we use to derive these estimates. And the estimates of the, are really, they're minimal uh, estimates uh, of protein need. And so I use an analogy that people are maybe a little bit more familiar with, uh, particularly Australians actually, is that, because uh, the names persisted, uh, is to say that, um, you know, we knew a long time ago that when we sent sailors on long voyages and they didn't get enough vitamin C, they got scurvy. So, the, you know, the British Navy put limes uh, on board. So hence, limey, it, it, the terms, you know. Um, so right around when we were uh, beginning to investigate uh, recommended dietary allowances, or it was really around prevention of deficiency. And so when you look, you know, post-World War II, it was the time when, you know, and we, what we were trying to get the idea of was how much do we have to put in a soldier's ration to have them still be functional and keep them fighting? And so, you know, a minimum amount of vitamin C was found to prevent scurvy. Aces were good. You know, fast forward four or five decades and now people go actually beyond the minimum, uh, there's actually benefits associated with, we don't, we're not just preventing scurvy, we're getting, you know, X, Y, and Z, and this, you know, and people go, oh yeah, so that's a good, so we should, we should recommend that. And, and that's where protein hasn't followed. So we've, we can feed people the minimum, the RDA, uh, to prevent deficiency, which is good, but the optimal level of protein intake, what's required beyond prevention of deficiency 
is a far more difficult proposition to define for protein than it would be for vitamin C. So, you know, this is, and this is, you know, we're, we're fighting over this scorched earth around, you know, uh, more protein is better. And then you've got a lot of people, I hate to stereotype, who generally lift a lot of weights. They're big heavyweights and they tend to be big guys. And they say, you know, some is good, more is better, and more than more is better, you know. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, that really is without sort of a, an appreciation for at some point, you simply can't put protein away and, and in places that you can store it. Like it's certainly not going into muscle. Like even if you do some really rudimentary back of the envelope calculations about you know, the most muscle that somebody could gain in any given year, and you know, let's say it's 30 pounds, the amount of protein needed to support that is, it, it, it's not a lot. Is it more than the RDA? In my estimation, it is. So you know, people say, how much? And so numbers, which I hate, and kilos, which is good because I'm talking to somebody that lives in a country that kilos work. Yes. I, tend to, I talk to a lot of American folks and they go, so how does that translate into pounds? I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, get with, get with the metric system and the rest of the world. But anyway, <laughs> so my point is, is, 0.8 grams of protein per kilo per day is the RDA. So if you're 50 kilos, that's 40 grams of protein. Everybody goes, what's 40 grams of protein? And I say, well, imagine you know a cup, 250 uh, milliliters of milk. That's that's nine grams of protein. So if you had four cups of milk and you weigh 50 kilos, that's your protein for the day. And people go, wow, that doesn't seem like much. And I'm like, well, it's not. It's pretty low. You know, you can scale that up. So if you weigh 100 kilos, then it's 80, 80 grams, which, you know, if you weigh 100 kilos, probably you're eating closer to something like 200 or more. Uh, I think for older people, uh, I tend to recommend at least one. I would prefer 1.2 grams of protein per kilo. And then everybody sort of said, well, but what about, you know, if I'm doing this, this, and this? And I'm like, sure. So I, I think. You could probably push it as high as about 1.6, which is twice the RDA. So that's a pretty substantial uh, increase. And I think after that, you know, the, the, the benefits begin to diminish. And, and people say, well, if you're in a caloric deficit, I'm like, okay, totally different situation. You could probably stand to eat more. But at some point, you know, the benefits are, are really diminish, diminishing returns is what it is. Um, so, you know, I, I like to stick to 1.6. I say that that really probably covers a lot of the, the, the ground in terms of the benefits that you're going to achieve. Uh, even if you think you're, you know, lifting five, six days a week and you're gaining and, you know, you name the number. Um, but again, back of the envelope math, it, it just doesn't work out. Yeah, that's, you know, typically where I kind of land with my own diet at about that 1.6 grams per kilogram mark. And, and I find that to be quite achievable without having to kind of hyper-focus on it. I think some of that rhetoric within the bodybuilding community about higher protein intake from from the conversations I've had and what I've, I've sort of been a fly on the wall listening to is about having a, a safety buffer and that it, it, it can't do any harm to have a little more. What are your, I guess this is a two-pronged kind of question. Is there harm in going higher than that? 
And even at those levels, 1.2, say 1.6, I think there will be people listening to this show who perhaps, uh, let's say, have read various books and and maybe they're following a a plant-based diet. And there is some rhetoric in the plant-based community out there that high protein is bad, it's harmful, it can be bad for kidney health. Uh, There are a lot of things said about high protein and I think in many cases, my, my view at least, is that protein is not focused on enough within the plant-based community. And I'm not saying that people need to be obsessed with it, but I do think it's worth being aware of for many of the reasons that we've discussed today. My question is, do people need to fear a protein intake at the level that you're talking about, 1.2, 1.6 grams, is that is that going to help them build muscle but potentially harm their health in another way? You know, I've been doing this for long enough, and I would uh, I would get the question about about harm uh, a lot. And you know, when I first started this 20 plus years ago, people would talk about renal health, and so this is a it must be almost 50 year old hypothesis put out by a guy named Brenner um, that if you, you know, fed these animals and he took one kidney away and then they essentially only had one kidney working to excrete urea, that they their kidneys failed. And you know the empirical observation was when you took kidney failure patients and you put them on a lower protein diet, because now the kidney doesn't have to filter urea, um, that these people live longer, your kidney lasts longer. The circular logic that's been applied is, is therefore then protein caused the kidney failure. And there's a lot of things that cause kidney failure. The two biggest ones are if you have type 2 diabetes uh, or if you have hypertension or worse, if you have the two of them together. But sure, there's lifestyle factors and lots of things. So let me just say that um, you know the way to solve the riddle of whether one causes the other is you have to go to randomized controlled trials and do an analysis that is what we call a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And what you're looking for is we take people like this, we feed them more protein, their kidney function declines, therefore it's, that's causative. We, we can make that, that assumption. Um, and when you look at the sum total of the evidence, and we did this analysis because I felt just a moral obligation, you know, if we're going to tell people to eat more protein, I don't better have a good answer to that question. So you know, let's just say is that it was out there for a lot of years and um, and we did our meta-analysis and another group had done another meta-analysis and then a third group did separately from us a, a, a similar meta-analysis. And the, and the outcomes are the same. Is We just can't find any relationship which shows that more protein leads to... Now, it does increase the rate of what we call glomerular filtration or kidney work then the subsequent decline that's supposed to happen, we've never seen that. So my point is, you know, at what point do you begin to say the hypothesis is, you know, either overemphasized and one is not causing the other, definitely not disagreeing that you should restrict protein in people with kidney failure, different question, but one doesn't cause the other. Uh, The usual other sort of bugaboo is that um, protein creates acidity in the blood it leaches calcium from your bones and then your bones, you, you know, you become more brittle and, and more subject to fractures. And I want to say that, that I think that one's been put to bed, not by me, but by several other groups of re, you know, researchers who have done these meta-analyses. And it, it, there are some caveats. So if you're getting adequate calcium 
an adequate vitamin D or vitamin D, whatever you, however you call it. Uh, so, you know, promoting good bone health. Protein is actually a bone supportive nutrient for, for bone health. And, you know, intakes above the RDA are associated with improved bone health outcomes and lower risks of fracture. But you have to get one and two in first. So you got to get the calcium, you got to get the D. Without that, the protein's not particularly helpful. So there's, there's a caveat there. The more recent idea is that um, protein, high protein reduces lifespan. And there's various theories uh, about that. Uh, is it methionine restriction? Is it protein restriction? Is it restriction of certain amino acids? Lots of different labs are, you know, looking at this, this type of work. And, you know, I know you've, I've, I've seen you on Twitter, so I know you've had people like David Sinclair in here and, uh, you know, his work is, it's outstanding. Um, I'll say this is that my take is we've probably learned and, you know, people like Aubrey de Grey would agree with this as much as we can about aging and longevity from fruit flies and mice, like we're done. And the major difference, and you know, I just want people to think about this, the mouse is born, lives in a cage. We start feeding high-protein diets in the mouse's life when it's very young. And it's a lifetime of exposure to that type of diet. And the mouse sits in a hermetically sealed environment. It's never exposed to, you know, two years ago, if I'd said virus, I'd been like, oh, so what? <laughs> now everybody's like, okay. <laughs> Um, you know, it's never been exposed to external stressors. It never has the car exhaust pumping, you know, environment, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a very different environment than what human beings are exposed to. So, you know, let's just say is that I think the research is fantastic. I, I find it extraordinarily interesting. I'm just looking for the translation piece that allows me to say that that's applicable to us. And, you know, so then there's been no trial of lifetime high protein feeding. And so we have to rely on observational evidence, you know, one person, this, that, and the other. And I do think that there's probably some upper limit for protein beyond which it's, it's not a good thing. Like you just can't keep eating high protein, high protein all the time uh, and expect to live a long and probably healthy life. So when you look at the diets of these folks we talked about in, in blue zones, they they tend to be on the lower side, but they've got so much else going on in their life that, you know, you, is it the diet that's important? It's not to be dismissed, but it's the cause effect. And when you think about all of the other things, not to mention, they probably picked their mom and dad pretty wisely. Uh, <laughs> so because they, they cluster around and everybody goes. You know, well, so and I'm like, so that's got to, you know, the concept of, uh, you know, genetic drift and re, and people relocating and all this sort of stuff. You know, my, my, my point in the end is I think that there's enough evidence to say that more than the RDA is a good thing, uh, but there's a point beyond which. And so I, I'm good with 1.6. I think it, you know, if you dip the water, the cloth in the water and you're squeezing the cloth out and the, you know, the water coming out is the benefit you squeezed a lot of water out at 1.6. You know, if you're one of those people that thinks you need to have a safety margin, that that's one of these. That's like your twi the cloth twisting in on itself and you're getting four drops and I'm like, yeah, but you're working you're working pretty hard. I don't think you're getting what you think you're getting 
for the amount of protein that you're putting in, if you're getting anything at all. Um, and I will say this, and you know, to your point around you know plant-based protein diets and and people, I, I I've dealt with athletes that um, have been vegan, some uh, vegetarian, and they thrived. And and I look at the amount of stress that they place their bodies under, and I and I think to myself, if they were in downside of this, they would see it. I've also dealt with athletes. That just they do, you know, frankly, like a really poor job being a vegan or vegetarian, even. And you know, like I say, you can you can have a slice of toast and a diet coke for lunch, and and you know, you're vegan. <laughs> uh, so I, I always talk about being judicious about how you pick your foods. And a lot of a lot of people on Twitter go, "Ah, oh, it's so easy," and I'm like, "But you're doing it because you're doing. You've lived it. You've you've made the switch, and you've figured the stuff out." So. Uh, anyway, my point is is that you can you can uh, I've seen lots of athletes, lots and lots of very good athletes live on what I would call not entirely optimal protein intakes, but but they're fine and, and or they're vegan or or vegetarian or they're omnivores and 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 you know things just tend to work out. And I don't know whether that's that they're doing it right or they're just special people and they're doing it because of or in spite of what they're doing but uh, whatever it is they've got going on it's uh it's it's pretty amazing sure well, it's i mean that's a good reminder i guess around any time you're removing certain foods from your diet what you're replacing them with is going to be really really important and i think you mentioned david sinclair and and sort of the work of volta longo comes to mind and and i think most of these guys would agree that while that area of research is very exciting, there are a lot of gaps. Um, and, and you sort of pointed to, to a few of those there. One thing that they talk about, and this kind of ties into the hypothesis of certain amino acids perhaps uh, affecting longevity, is they both are definitely recommending a higher protein intake as someone gets a bit older to help prevent sarcopenia and, and uh, maintain muscle mass. But they also point to plant proteins as perhaps protective, I guess, compared to animal protein because of the difference in amino acid sort of makeup. And, and this gets me to protein source. And I, I'm interested, if we just remove any consideration of planetary health and animal welfare, that starts to, to make the conversation much more broader. I want to stick here to building uh, muscle what are the pros and cons of animal and, and, and plant protein when we're sort of having this conversation here and looking through that scientific lens uh, at protein consumption and the development of muscle and strength? Yeah, well, so first let me say uh, thanks for removing the two things that I, I know nothing about. And, 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 you know, as soon as somebody talks about animal ethics, I'm like, <laughs> I, can, I can't argue with you. You know, if that's your, and, and there's lots of, sense to, to to that viewpoint and uh, like completely respect people's you know opinion on that everything uh i think we're beginning to get better now at the actual numbers around planetary health and global warming and what it means and everything else like that uh because i'll be honest the first time i heard some of these things it was sort of like if you slipped a decimal point you get an entirely different answer so i learned those things through osmosis of, and it's been a real privilege to be able to speak on the topic of protein and sort of be the exercise and muscle guy. And I can walk off and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly safe 
So I listen and I try and absorb as much as I can and, and I'm learning and I'm, I'm being schooled by a lot of, uh, a lot of people on that one. So, um, you know, so from a, a pure protein quality standpoint, I mean, I think the fundamental truism is that, uh, you know, animal source proteins are, they tend to be higher quality. It's just, you know, the, the way things are, it's, it's nature. The quality issue is, you know, a function of two things. First, digestibility. And really what we'll talk, we won't, you know, get too deep into the weeds with that. But, you know, plant proteins have dietary fiber uh, and dietary fiber is, you know, it's anti-nutritional. There's no nutritional value, but it inhibits the, the, absor- the digestion and absorption of, of amino acids. And plants have evolved uh, such that their amino acid composition is maybe not optimal in terms of all of those essential amino acids, those nine essential amino acids to support muscle. Um, but one observation, and I always think this is, this blows me away when I, when I say this to my undergrads and I'm like, isn't this amazing? And I think they glaze over, but I, you, you go around the world and in places that there's not a high focus on consumption of animal proteins. So you go to India and the you know, Southeast Asian subcontinent, you go to, uh, the Caribbean, you go to Latin America and everything, everybody's figured out that beans and rice or a legume and a, and a grain are good together. And I said, you know, how does that happen? I said, it has to be an evolutionary pressure that if you were just a bean eater and a stress came along, you died. Or, or if you were just a grain eater. So people learn, just learn, you know, through experimentation you know, and then from that standpoint, again, it's it's the judicious pairing of proteins and that sort of thing. Again, 20 years ago, you just said, you know, it was all soy 20 years ago versus, um, you know, whey or milk-based proteins that have been like, oh, milk-based proteins, hands down. 15 years ago, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah probably still milk proteins. Yeah. 10 years ago, I'm like, I don't know. Like if you've got the way that they are purifying soy protein now and they, they're taking the anti-nutritional compounds out of it. So I think they're they're pretty close. Now we know they are. There's there's, you know, you're you wouldn't be able, your body wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Foods are still foods and you know, it's always a food first approach if you can. So the way that you make up for a lower amino acid content is you either eat more or you pair your proteins the way that we've talked about. And now we're beginning to get into, and we, you know, you and I have exchanged a couple of uh, tweets back and forth on this. Sources of proteins um, from fermented processes, which you know it's not new, right? But it's it's new to people, uh, you know, who didn't uh, eat a lot of fermented proteins. But yeah, in, in Southeast Asia, it's been a, a part of the way of doing things for, for years, or well, centuries. So. We're beginning to get those things be mainstream. We're beginning to see protein products that are pairing these two uh, sources of proteins in a product together, so you don't have to think about it. And so I think it's it's a much easier proposition to talk about comparable sources of amino acids being available um, in proteins without. And I don't want to be derogatory. I'm mean, saying have to think as much, but maybe with a little less about the planning is that there's a lot more complementary sources and, and vegan and, and, and vegetarian sources of protein that uh, allow you to get all the things. And, you know, we've done, I wouldn't believe this, but we did the, the work collaboratively with a group in Brazil. Um, and mm-hmm. once we got 
you know, people on like vegan vegetarians on a, a 1.6 gram per kilo per day diet, they gain the same amount of muscle, the same strength and everything as, as people who are omnivores. So, you know, that for me, and, and people, you know, people say that like one of the first grants I ever got outside of my basic science work was from the dairy council. And people say, oh, like you're a shill for big dairy. And I'm like, I was going to ask you about this. Because I, I I see that a bit, and I thought, well, that's not entirely fair. <laughs> and I said, you know, you know what, man? Like, uh, I, I, I don't have a farm. Like, you know, I, I live in. A, I got I have a nice. I got a good job, right? I have a nice car. I got a great wife. You know, I got a good family. But I'm not fueling up my private jet. Like I'm, you know, I, I whatever. Let's just say is that you know, if I'm a, a shill, whatever I'm shilling for, uh, there's not much shill uh, in it. But so. You know, people, I think, have been a little bit disappointed with, the, with my, you know, backing off, you know, milk protein is the best. I still think it's a useful source of protein. I still think dairy is a great part of uh, your diet if you choose to have it. But, you know, the fundamental uh, reality is, is that um, plant source proteins are as good if you eat enough of them. And, you know, the purification processes and you know, staples of a lot of diets now, things like textured vegetable protein are, uh, they make things very, very easy uh, to come up with equivalent sources of protein. Yeah, I actually had Hamilton Rochelle on the show. So if anyone... Oh, okay, yeah. He's my guy. Yeah, there you go. That's the study, the Brazil study that Stuart's talking about. He, you know, and and yeah, so the, thank you for that. It, it, like, huge shout out to him. He, uh, he and I sat down... I don't know how many, like people I think are always surprised how long these things take to plan, conceive, carry out, come to fruition. A solid like six, seven years probably between one, from one to the other. Uh, and yeah, they, those guys did the hard work. So credit to them. I, I, was a, I was a passenger on that one, but it was awesome to see it, see it come together. If you are listening and you haven't listened to that episode, you want to learn more about that study. That was a, an entire conversation dedicated to this study that Stuart's talking about. I know we're, we're sort of getting to the end of this conversation and I'd love to get you back on to expand on a number of things and, and dig deeper. I want to talk about things like supplementation. I'd like to talk about uh, exogenous hormones and there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, sort of underground use of that stuff. But then there's also uh, hormone replacement therapy and you hear about insulin and uh, human growth hormone, all that stuff I think would be really cool to, to explore with you and get your views on it. But just to kind of tie off on that point that you were making there about plant protein, I just want to make sure I'm kind of hearing that correctly. You're sort of saying animal protein, if you just put two foods side by side and, and looked at the amino acids within it and we're talking about promoting muscle growth, you would point to the animal protein as being a higher quality. But then within a, a mixed diet, if you're getting sufficient protein, particularly if you're hitting that 1.6 grams per kilogram mark, you're providing the body with enough essential amino acids through some diversity you, you have. We haven't spoken much about it, but I know you talk about having enough leucine, which seems to be about two and a half grams per meal. If you're doing all of that and your resistance training is in good order, then the source doesn't seem to be uh, hugely important. Yeah, no, I, I, that's what I would say. And I mean, I think the, you know, we, we're responsible for generating some of the data that makes people say, well, maybe you should aim higher because you're optimizing. And my point is, is that's fine. And there's, you know, uh, other people talk about acute studies that 
use a method to estimate protein requirements. And I would say, okay, well then show me the data that 1.6 versus your number, 2.2 or 2.4, uh, you're getting more. And, and there are no studies like that. So uh, it's it's just about, it's scorched earth, right? It's, you know, at some point, my point is, is that you, you can't squeeze any more water out of the cloth. And they say you can, and I'm like, show me. And, and, and then it's just a vacuum. So, you know, um, I, I think the point that you made around, you know, equivalency of protein intakes is a really good one. And the people need to walk away with that as opposed to, you know, worrying uh, when you're on a plant-based diet or something as much as some people do. But to your point you made earlier, and, and I think this is, is relevant, is that uh, there probably are some people that are under-consuming. And, and I do think, particularly if you're older, and particularly if you face a, a, a stressor, and the stressor can be sickness, or it could be just a period of inactivity or hospitalization, whatever it is, then you're going to, that's when you're going to suffer. That's when you're going to see that big decline and you don't have the muscle, you don't have the reserve. And the hard part is when you're older, this is the depressing part. When you're young, you just do this and you come back. When you're older, you go down like this and it's hard to turn it back. So it probably represents a, a permanent loss of, well, definitely muscle and maybe muscle function. So those are the times where I do think that older people uh, could stand to, to think a little bit more about their, their protein intake and resistance exercise, of course. Sure. And as you sort of say that, I'm thinking about my mom and, and I know that I've been working closely with her to get her to bump her protein intake up a bit. I've noticed her appetite as she's got older has actually reduced. And and you spoke earlier about ideally you're getting this through food. What are your thoughts on if someone is thinking, gosh, you know, I'm just struggling to eat the volume and, and get more food in and now you're telling me to eat more protein. Of course, you know, you can remove certain foods maybe to make room. But what are your thoughts on, you know, protein supplementation in the form of a powder or some sort of nutritional shake for, for people perhaps, you know, as they're aging? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for younger people, to be clear about supplementation, the, the big thing for most young people, it's convenience over and above anything else. Not to say that that's not a reason to consume it. But if you're older, uh, yeah, your appetite declines. Uh, the amount of food that you would have to ingest to reach certain protein intakes makes it difficult. And so I do think that there's room for, for protein supplementation in that group. The hard part and a lot of the pushback comes, and, and again, I'm, I know I'm painting with a broad stroke here, from a lot of dietitians who just fundamentally or, you know, just on principle, uh, opposed to anything that isn't a food-based solution to some of these things. And so the accelerated version of that, I always say, is would, would you try and force a patient in the, the ICU to eat food? And they're like, well, no, of course not. And I'm like, well, you know, just back it off in steps to the point where you think about an older person with a low appetite and all of these things, and you're going to try and get them to eat enough food. And it just, it's not going to work. So you have to accept the practicality and the reality that you know, protein supplements could be useful in those scenarios. And uh, I think there's a growing... Uh, acceptance that that's probably true. 
Well said. I think we did it. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I appreciate your time. I know you're super busy. You're about to, to dart off and uh, teach some students. That was really, really informative, very instructive. Uh, as I mentioned, there's so much more that we could dig into. So I would love to have you back on uh, in the future. If folks listening would like to connect with you or stay up to date with your research, where's the, the sort of best place or places for them to find you? Sure, yeah. Uh, as you said, um, I'm on Twitter. It's probably my most active of all the social media profiles. So I'm at MacKinProf, M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F. Uh, same handle on Instagram, still kind of figuring out how Instagram works. A little too much about I, I hate to take a picture of myself and then, let, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> I want the science to speak for itself, but I get it. Um, and I'm, I'm on Facebook as well. If you just look for Stuart Phillips and McMaster University, or if you put that into Google, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You can find me on all of those things. I try and put some stuff on, on each of the platforms to try and reach a broad audience. But, um, and every now and again, People send me emails, which is great. And I'm just going to pre-apologize that you know, if I don't reply, it doesn't mean I don't care. But I'm filtering about, you know, about 80 emails a day. And so you know, sometimes your email might slip to the back of the pile. But uh, I do try and reply to people in terms of emails as well. And busy writing grants, I'm sure, as well. So uh... I'm a professional <laughs> beggar. Like, that's what I am. I'm like, give me money to show so I can you know, come back on Simon's podcast yeah. and, and tell people about it, yeah. Yeah, well, we look forward to that. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me on. There we go, friends. I hope you found that as interesting and informative as I did. As mentioned in the introduction, please keep an eye out for part two of this conversation coming out in a few months' time. In this follow-up episode, we are going to explore whether protein timing matters, whether eating lots of protein above 30 to 40 grams in a serving is a waste, what supplements can be helpful for building and maintaining muscle, the role of hormones and ways to naturally modulate hormones to improve muscle growth and build strength, exogenous hormone supplementation, and plenty more. If you are keen to be notified when that one comes out, I suggest subscribing to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you'll get a notification as soon as it's published. Now, final note to all of those who are still here listening, I appreciate you hanging out all the way to the end. I am trying something new over the next few months, and to help me with this, I would like members of the community, that is you, those who are willing anyway, to send me a video saying hi, what you have enjoyed about the show to date, and most importantly, asking me a particular question that you would like to have answered by me. The best way to send these to me is via direct message on Instagram at plant underscore proof. That is at plant underscore proof. I am looking for videos that are two minutes or less in length, so please keep the question nice and punchy. Together with my team, I will be selecting various videos and answering the questions, also in video format. The question can be nutrition related or not. It could be about me, it could be funny, or it could be serious. Totally up to you and whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Noting that the videos will be shared on my social media. You'll of course be tagged. Sound good to you? Okay, cool. 
And on that lovely note, it's time to land this plane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I love you guys. And as always, I'm looking forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.